This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody, to Journey of Unity number 15. So, tonight's Pasuk is a Pasuk which, on the surface, is doesn't seem to be giving us a lot more information than we've already known up until this point. But like many of the other Sukkim here, as we delve into it, I think that we can get to a certain uh, level of depth and panemius to marriage. And I think that as we are going through this and you hear some of these ideas, I think that it is open for misuse or abuse. So I think that as we go through this, I want to try to slowly um, present this in a way that will be understandable and not... I'll call it misunderstood. I don't want to be misunderstood. I want to make sure that we have a clarity here, okay? Because I think, I, 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 in general in life, by the way, I'll just say that I've noticed that opposites in life oftentimes mirror each other. So um, certain things, they, for a short time, look like the other extreme, but it's really in the long run that you're able to tell what it is. So I always say, like, a car that's driving 100 miles an hour can either be a really professional driver or a really reckless driver, right? You don't necessarily know right away like what is going on. And arrogance and confidence, they oftentimes, for a short period of time, it's hard to tell what which one is which. And there's many things in life which opposites can seem very similar to each other. And it's usually when you stick around for a while that you start to notice, oh, this guy was confident and this guy was arrogant and this guy is a professional and this guy is reckless. So I, I don't want to get confused over here between certain things which are on opposite sides of the spectrum. So I think we got to build through this slowly. So the Pasuk is as follows. The Pasuk says, Sadin Atimkar, the Chagar Nasna Laknani, which basically means, once again, that this Eshazchayel is making Sadin, she's making sheets, and she's selling them. The Chagar, and she's making like belts, Nasna Laknani, she's giving those away. So certain things she's selling, and certain things she's giving away. So the Rabag explains this Pasuk in an interesting way. It says, Sudden asus of a timkar that this woman is selling. Now she's been an entrepreneurial woman from the gecko, right? She's right from the beginning. We said, you know, the whole time as you go through her stories, starting from Pasuk Dalid, she was already starting to hustle and sell. And then she's buying fields and she's selling. And then she has a wholesale business, an import business. This woman doesn't stop going. So what is the chiddush here that she's doing? What is she doing extra here? So the Robach says a very interesting thing. He says that she's selling in order to make a profit. And then with the profit, she will spend on, on herself whatever she wants to do. His lashon is lick nice by to spend with the money. Whatever she wants. So she, she's selling now in order to have profit. Like, okay, what, what else? Why else would you sell? Whatever she wants to sell or whatever she wants to spend her money on, that's what she will do. That is the purpose of her sale. So what was she doing up until now? Why was she investing all this money up until now? She was investing so that she wouldn't have this money to sell. It doesn't make any sense. But the Rabbah says, no, she's selling in order to make profit, in order to spend the money on whatever she wants to spend the money on. Okay, so... There's an idea that I want to segue into, which I think answers this question. There's a famous American line that people say, they say that time is money, right? What does that mean, time is money? Time is money means that 
I have billable hours. And if I'm spending time on something which is not productive, then I just wasted billable hours. So people say time is money. Like, oh, I just spent time with you. <laughs> time is money. I could have I charged somebody for that, right? That is a very famous term, time is money. Now, I'm reading a book on the psychology of money. And this person explains that, in fact, and this is my own word over here, money is time. Time is not money. Money is time. That the ultimate chachma of, of making money and developing wealth is the ability to control your time. And the ultimate like financial stability or security that a person should try to strive for is that they have enough money to do with their time as much as they want to do. You're not constrained by the fact that you don't have money to do what you want to do. I thought that was a very big chiddush. It's not that time is money. It's that money is the ability to control your time. And the richest people are people that actually have a life. Okay, to paraphrase. They're the people who actually have a life. So if you're constantly working and you don't have a life because you're constantly in pursuit of more money, therefore, you're constrained by money. And therefore, for you, time is money. But for the person who's truly wealthy, they can break out of that and they can actually live their life. They can go take pictures if they want to go, go somewhere and just snap some pictures. They can join Hatzala. They can spend time with their family. They can go on vacation. Do whatever they'd like to do in order to spend the time the way that they want. That is true wealth. So what are we saying here? That this woman, she chops something. That up until now, she's been spending her time in order to make money because she had to provide for her family. And we said she even has to provide for those who provide for her family. She has those helpers in the house. She has to make sure that they have the sandwiches that they like eating. And this one is vegan and this one is gluten-free. And she makes sure she doesn't mix them up. She's very concerned for all the people in her life, including her husband and her kids and everything. Here, she just went somewhere that was very unique. She stopped for a minute and she said, what do I want? Now, sounds bad, but she uses this in a good way. She stops and she says, what do I want? What do I want to spend my money on? What do I want to spend my time on? What is my opinion on a certain matter? She segued from being somebody that was just completely dedicated, and I know this sounds trafe as I say it, to all of a sudden somebody who actually has a voice, somebody who actually has an opinion. And what the Pasuk is telling us is that when you get to this point, Samach, it's not all the way in the beginning of marriage. You got to a point that your voice is heard. You are a person. In Hebrew, I think they would say like you are a gavra. A feminine term, I don't know. Yeah, You are, you're present. Your voice is heard within this relationship. That now makes it that when you say something, there's a certain seriousness to what you say. You know, in, in, in my wife always says this phrase. She always says that people who always say yes, they're very nice people. But people who say no, you know that their yes is a real yes. When they're actually able to put down boundaries, it's like, whoa, this is new. This is like a chiddush. Like there's something here. You're somebody. No, this doesn't work for me. No, this is not okay for me. No, I think this. It's a, it's a new level of real respect for yourself. Now, it's not a selfish 
respect for yourself. It's not a selfish voice. You're not in this for yourself. You're in this for your family. But you recognize that by having a voice and by having your spouse have a voice in your marriage, that is the greatest thing that you can bring to your marriage. It's it's something that's so deep and it's so simple, but there's so many people that within their marriages, they just become a big challenge between who's him and who's her and what does he say and what does she say. And that's, that's very nice. It's very nice for people to become one. We spoke about this idea last time. It's great to become one. But it's also great when you actually have a voice in the marriage. I remember a certain Gadol, he, he once said that when he was dating, he was known as a, I'll call it as like an, like an Eloi when he was dating. He was known to be very smart. And there was a lot of girls that were dating him. And, you know, and he dated for a long time. He dated till he was in his high 20s which again, relatively, but you know, he was on the market for a number of years. And he said that he, he knew that his wife was his wife because after dating about 100 girls, every girl he dated, when he would say something, they would go, oh, wow, wow, you're so smart. Wow, you're genius. Wow, it's so smart, right? And he, he sat down with his wife and he started talking and he said something and she said, oh, really? But what about this? So he gave her an answer and she said, yeah, but what about that? And he said, I like you. Somebody who's, who's, I'm marrying a person. I'm marrying somebody who, who has a brain. I'm marrying somebody who has an opinion, who has a voice. That's amazing. He said, that was when I knew this was the one for me. Somebody just going along with my day. The Gemara talks about this when in a Rebbe Talmud relationship or in a Chavrusa Chavrusa relationship. Somebody who just always says, yes, 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 yes. Those people don't help you much in your life. If you're going along the journey of life, which marriage is supposed to take you on, a development course where you become something new, then how do you become something new when you don't have a voice, when you don't have a dea? You, you, your opinion absolutely doesn't matter. When your spouse is answering for you or you are answering for your spouse, that idea is not necessarily so healthy. It's, it's, it's a good idea, I would imagine, for couples along their journey to, to try that, meaning it's good to support your spouse it's good to say, no, you make the decision along your ride while you're learning the balance. But ultimately, a person has to have a voice. A person has to be able to push back. There's a very famous story. I don't know. I don't remember all the details. A fam- famous story of Chaim Kanievsky that he, he used to have his hours for people. And then he would seclude himself where, you know, he was really not accessible to the Tibor. Rebetzin Bacheva Kanievsky she had a, a girl come to her who had just ex- experienced something very traumatic. And she was bawling her eyes out and crying and crying to the Rebetzin. So the Rebetzin realized that she could use some chizak from Reb Chaim. So she, she went to the door where Reb Chaim was and she, she opened it or she had a key and she went inside. And Reb Chaim looked up and he saw this girl needed something and the Rebetzin basically said over the story very quickly. And Reb Chaim said, oh, bua, you know, that was his classic thing, bua, like katsacha. And the Rebetzin said, no, no, not bua, not for this. This needs more than just Bua. So we're kind of, oh, needs more than Bua? Okay. The Rebbitson spoke. We put aside the Gemara. How you doing? Tell me what happened. They spent a few minutes. She had a voice. She supported him to no end. Anything he wanted in life of Chaim, the Rebbitson at his beck and call. She understood who he was to the point where, even when they were dating very famously, the Chaim came to the Nebrak from Yerushalayim and when he got off the bus, like 
him and her, like they were supposed to meet, and he was so orangutan and learning, he didn't even, he was wandering the streets. Until the next time, you know, it sounded like he was supposed to pick her up, and then he was, they were so, and she said, you know what, whoever you are, however you are, I will connect to you, it's fine, it's beautiful, you're, you're, you're safe retire, that's gonna be our marriage. But even in that marriage, she had a voice. She had a voice, she was able to be heard. That idea is, I think, this idea. This woman doesn't just say to herself, like, okay, I'm making money. My family's good. My kids are good. My husband's good. Are you good? Are you good? What do you think about this? Have you thought about this? Do you have, like, an opinion? Now, you have to strike a balance here where it's not an overwhelming opinion, where the opinion is not hurting your spouse. You're not just saying no just to say no, oh, just to teach you that when I say yes, it's a real yes. No, that's, that's crazy talk. It's, it's, I love you, I care for you, I respect you, and you respect me. And when you say something, I say something. It, we can disagree. It's fine. It's fine. My wife just reminded me, we, there was somebody who asked both of us something, and we had discussed it for like an hour. And then we got on the phone with this person, and they were going through everything, and they said to me, um, they said, so what do you, what do you, what would both of you say? So I didn't realize it at the time, but I said, I said, I can't speak for my wife, but this is my opinion. And I said it. And then they said to my wife, what do you say? So she said, yeah, I agree. That was a very short blurb. Then later, my wife said, she said, you know, I, I really appreciate that, that small statement. I can't speak for my wife. She said that, that made me feel that like I could say something. I, I could disagree. If I want to speak up, I have a voice. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even like, as they say in Yiddish, I didn't shtell on that. Like, I didn't even like dwell on that for like more than a second. But I was like, yeah, why should I answer for you? Even though we discussed it for like an hour. But maybe she, now that we had this conversation, there was something that she wanted to add. The ability to have a voice, to find your voice, to find your opinion, but that your opinion also means that your spouse also has an opinion and that it's really respected. Is not so simple. And what I find is that a lot of times when couples come, they think that they martyred themselves into this marriage and therefore they worked hard on their marriage. And therefore, how can my marriage be bad? I do everything my spouse wants. But maybe your spouse wants a spouse. And oftentimes by just having your own opinion, you find that your spouse is able to respect you a lot more than just nodding your head like a bobblehead and just going along with everything, which again is a madrega. But sometimes a spouse actually wants a spouse. And you'll find that sometimes by pushing back, not in a rough way and not just lashame pushing back, you're not just pushing back to push back, but you actually, you have an opinion. This doesn't work for me right now. Can we... Can I make you food a little later? Can I do that? Whatever the case is, I don't want to give examples. We'll talk about them, I'm sure, in the Q&A. But having the ability to talk and have your opinion be heard is an extremely powerful piece. The second idea is based on the Malbam. And the Malbam says that, the second half of this passage says, V'chagar nas nalaknani. That this Eishas Chayel gives away these chagar. Chagar is like a belt. Give away the belt. What does that mean? So some 
some explain this to mean that she first works and then she makes profit and then she gives away the profit. Like she's worked, this is like her tzedakah account. She has like a special side business where like she makes money, makes the profit and then just gives it away. That's one explanation. But another explanation is that she spends her time just like a belt holds up a pair of pants. So the pants are essential. Belt is maybe not so essential, but maybe for some people it is essential, right? But the belt is the support, let's call it, right? So she 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 spends time giving away nasna. She gives away the chagar. She gives away the support. What does that mean? So the, the Malbim explains this to mean that there's a certain amount of chachma that elevates life, meaning people live their life, right? You go through every day. But a smart person, they have like life hacks where they know if you do this and this and this, you'll be happier in your marriage, with your children, in your business, whatever. That's chachma. So she goes ahead and she acquires chachma and then she gives it away to people. She gives it away. She says, oh, you want to learn? I'll teach you. No problem. You need some time? I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. She takes what she has, her resources, not just money, but she has something in her mind and she actually gives it away. So what does this mean? It means that this, this woman started living her life. She settled her family. Family's good. Now she's ready to start giving out to the tzibor, to the ka. What's the mile of this? Like, what is the benefit of this? So I think that there's three layers here of what this woman accomplished. The first thing is there is a, a concept. They, I would almost call this like a psychological term that very successful people in life, people who are very wealthy, people who are very famous, they oftentimes have something called the imposter syndrome. It's a, a syndrome where they're almost like they are on stage. They're not, they're not authentic. They are a persona. There's a person I know who I obviously won't say his name, but very much strikes me with this. Like I, somebody I knew from when I was very young. That the person who they are, their name, and who they are authentically is covered over with a shell because of who they became. They became somebody well-known. And that stage name, that stage persona, is how they present to the world. It's not them. It's this fake them. And many celebrities and wealthy people, they realize over time that that, that feeling leaves you very, very empty. Yes, I have all this money. But so what? Yeah, I have all this fame. But so what? Which is why, like, in the world of celebrities, there's such a high suicide rate and divorce rate and depression rate and anxiety rate. They're all on drugs and self-hypnosis and sitting on a mountain and looking for, like, ways of connecting and becoming grounded back down to earth. Because they are something, but they are not them. And they're looking so desperately to find, who am I? Who is the me? I don't remember me. When I was just carefree and nobody was stopping me on the street and saying hi and taking selfies with me. I don't know who that is. So I became an imposter. I became somebody other than who I really am. And many of them, they turn to either religion and many of them turn to altruism. They start giving away money. They start dedicating things. You find even now with all these riots or these you know, things going on because of you know, Palestine and Hamas and Israel and everything, how many Jewish philanthropists started pulling back their money from these colleges. And if you, if you think about it, it's literally like hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that they stopped giving to these colleges. And you think to yourself, are you kidding me? You gave $50 million a year, every year of your life to Harvard 
or, or to Yale or to Princeton, to these universities. Why? What was driving you to do that? It's one thing you went somewhere and you write them an $18 check. Like you're writing these people $50 million a year, this endowment fund and that fund. These, these, these colleges are sitting with so much money. What prompts these people to give so much money? The answer is because when you, when you look back on your life, you want to leave a legacy. You want to leave something that says like, I did something good for the world. I wasn't just selfish with my money. Yes, I made a hundred billion dollars or whatever the number is. I left something for the world, for society, right? And education is a value and I supported my value. So comes along this Aisha's Kyle and she says, listen, I've lived through my life. I'm doing everything I can do. My family is great. My business is, is, is rolling. Now it's time for me to give a little bit back to the, to the community. And that I think is the first level. Giving back. You give back. You have a reason to live. You're not just living for selfish purposes. You're giving out to other people as well. But I think that it goes a step further. There's a friend of mine, very wealthy individual. And he, he, once, he once told me that he, w- he went to a meeting with somebody who solicited him for money. So he wrote out the person, he wrote out to the person a check very nice check. I'm throwing out a number, $50,000. So he wrote out a check, let's say $50,000, and he handed it over to the person. This guy's running the yeshiva. He gave it over to him. So the person said, oh, you know, now that you're here, you're very smart. You're very successful. Let me ask you a question. So like with this $50,000, do you think I should spend it on this? Should I spend it on that? He started asking him like his opinion. So my friend said to him, you know, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be running your yeshiva and maybe you would be running my company. I gave you the money because I trust you to make smart decisions with this money. You'll figure it out on your own. You're the Rosh Hashiva. You're the administrator. This is your domain. I'll stay in my lane and you stay in your lane. And I was blown away by that. And he told me that this, this Rosh Hashiva or administrator of this yeshiva told him, he said, I've never had anybody say that to me. Usually they give me money. And then they start saying, oh, I need you to take in this boy. I need you to do this, kick this person out, teach English, don't teach English. Everybody has all their opinions. He said, I've never had somebody tell me that I'm the one who's qualified for my job. Never. Now, this this person who I know, this friend of mine, happens to be a very, very altruistic person, but real altruism. It's not fake. When he gives, he truly gives. He gives, there's no strings attached. Here you go. I trust you're going to make smart decisions with this money. And then he pulls back. That idea is, I think, what this idea really is. The Chagar Nasna Laknani is that this person is understanding that giving because my name is on a building is very, very nice. And it's certainly a madrega, and we should all strive to do that. Halavai, by all of us, very soon, Bakar. Okay? Now, if you're not there, you can give a smaller amount, but we all look for that recognition. Of course. No, no problem. That's a level. It's a madrega. But the madrega of giving, where the giving starts to affect you, for, for positive, I'm, I'm giving and I'm actually learning to become a giver. That, that's, that's already a step two. I'm not just simply giving. I'm giving and I'm learning to become a true giver. That's, that's my drag over here. And then there's, I think, the third step. And the third step is this idea that the Malbum says. That this person, this Aisha Schael, this man, this woman, they start to teach others the craft that they that they figured out over their life. It could be it's in the business world. It could be it's in relationships. It could be it's Tyra. It could be anything. They start teaching. And what is so great about teaching? What's so great about teaching is that Chazal tell us 
that a person, that a person learns more from their Talmidim than anybody else. Why is that? Why is that? Because teaching automatically evokes people pushing back on you. And when they push back on you, it, it, it humbles you to start developing your ideas a little different than maybe you thought it was right away. So this person understands this. I'm not just here to become successful in life. I'm here to start changing as an individual. I will start giving. I will start giving and learning to become a giver. It's a level. I will start teaching in order to become humbled so that I won't sit on top of this mountain and say, oh, I'm so good. I'm so smart. I'm this Aisha Kyle. I'm perfect. My family's perfect. Everybody's perfect. I'm willing to, to be challenged, to be open to hearing criticism. I'm willing to go down that journey. So this incredible, I think it's incredible. Again, we don't talk about Gayim and, and compliment them, but on whatever level, you know, Baruch HaMavdum and Kedosh Lechol, I just want to say this story. I think this is a very powerful story. There's a company, you may have heard of it, it's called SpaceX. It's run by probably the smartest man alive today, Elon Musk. Okay, And they spent, in one year, over $2 billion on rocket research. Now, the ability to sit down and interview Elon Musk, who literally sleeps two hours a day between all of his different companies. There's no like Bittelsmann by this man. If you listen to him talk, you realize every single second is Khajbin. But interestingly enough, he does a lot of interviews and he talks to a lot of people. So there's this very interesting interview where he's walking, right? And he's, he's talking and he has his meetings and he's explaining to somebody about cold water in the boosters of these rockets. Okay, so keep in mind, they, they, they recruited the top rocket scientists, literally, okay? They spent $2 billion developing this. And he's talking to like this young guy. I don't know how old he is. Let's assume he's high school or, or college age. And this guy's asking him questions. This guy is not a rocket scientist in any way, shape or form. And he's talking to Elon Musk, arguably the smartest man in the world. And as he's talking to him, he says, oh, what is this? And he says, well, you have to understand the rocket propulsion. And he goes, starts going to this whole technical explanation. And he says, and therefore, we realize that if we fill this, this and this thing with water, then it cools down. And then we can substitute this. And then he's giving like a whole shtickle tear. So this young guy, he says, oh, that's so interesting. You did that on the booster only? Or you also did that on the rocket itself, like on the main rocket? You see him stop. And he stops. And he's like, wow. Wow, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. Wow. Nobody here thought about that. That is genius. Thank you. And they continue walking. Nine months later, this same guy reached out for another interview. And he granted him an interview. And he remembered him. And as they're walking around, he says, you know, the most significant upgrade that we did over the last nine months, $2 billion, okay, was because of that one question that you asked. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, that's pretty mind-boggling. Okay, it's pretty mind-boggling, right? You think about it. probably the smartest man in the world, and he understands that in order to become really successful, you have to listen to other people. You, you can't be self-absorbed. You can't just be somebody who, well, I'm smart, and therefore you follow my command. Yeah, you surround yourself with people who they also have a voice, and you listen to their voice because that voice is in your life for a reason. You dated this person and they challenged you? That's good. Listen to them. 
I, I always tell couples, like the person you married, if you're smart, they're probably also smart. So why don't you listen to them one time? Sometimes couples come in and they start talking and say, well, let's stop. You tell me what your wife is going to say and the wife should tell me what the husband's going to say. They're like, nah, but <laughs> switch, switch roles for one second. Just tell me what this other person, this really smart individual that you went through life with, this journey of life, you're married to them for 25 years. What are they going to say? What are they going to say about the story? What are they going to say is the emotion behind this and this story? Listening to somebody else's voice takes a certain amount of anilas. And it struck me that what's really going on over here is that marriage, we always say, is the ultimate self-development course. Here's where I believe you start to see this come together. This person is, is understanding that success in and of itself is not really successful. In order to become really successful, I have to start changing myself. I have to be more confident. I have to have a voice. I have to listen to somebody's voice. I have to give. I have to teach. I have to be able to be challenged, to listen to those challenges. Not that your, your child says something to you and, and, and oh, I didn't lose my mind tonight. Okay, good. It's a madrega. If you didn't lose your mind, good. But I got myself to the point where like I heard what they had to say. They had, they had a good piece of advice or they had an emotion that was bothering them and I stopped for a minute to think and listen. Or my parents said something and I was able to listen to them, to stop for a minute and just realize that a voice is absolutely critical. And Medrash says, if you want to put this all together, that who is, who is this Pasuk talking about? Every Pasuk in Mishle, in, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Eshes Chayel is referring to somebody. And the Medrash says that this Pasuk is referring to the mother of Shimshon Hagibar. So the story is what actually struck me as being very interesting. I'm sure you know this, but we'll, we'll review this for one second. The story goes was that there was a man named Menayach. And the Gemara and Bracha says that Menayach was not exactly um, the most well-learned person. Gemara actually talks and says he was like an Amaretz. You see in a lot of the things that he did, he was not the most learned person. His mother, apparently, was, we don't know her name, although there are different references to it in different svarim. The, the Navi doesn't say her name explicitly. And she, she has a vision where a Malach comes to her and says to her, you should know you're going to have a child, and this child is going to become the one that is going to save Kal Yisrael. She says, okay. He says, no, it's not as simple as that. This child is going to become a Nazir, and you, since you're going to become pregnant with this child, uh, you cannot have any wine, any grapes, you have to take on Naziris as well, so that when he's born into this world, he has all of the qualifications of a child mamish born into Naziris. And that became Shimshon, Shimshon Agiba, right? But there's a part of the story that's very interesting. We are, he goes ahead, Menayach, after he's told this by his wife, and he says, oh yeah, that's what the Malach told you? Yeah. So he says, you know, I, I really wish the Malach would come and tell me as well what, what he told you. So the Pasuk says, And he said, right? The, the man that you sent, meaning the Malach, let him come back again. Let him tell us again what's going to happen with this child. So Hashem listened to Menayach's voice, which Many explain the reason why Hashem did this was because in order to raise a child to be successful, you need both parents. So therefore, he was asking for something that made sense. And therefore, the Malach came back, right? And where did the Malach come to? The wife. 
Okay, and the wife went and called her husband, Menayach. Menayach came running in, and the Malach says, yes, everything that I told your wife, that's what you should do. And he said, oh, wow, that's amazing. Can I bring you a carbon? He said, nope, that is, that is problematic. You could only bring a carbon to Hashem. And basically, the Malach said, thank you, I'm leaving, and the Malach left. Okay, so it's interesting. This wife had this balance. Let's talk about the second part of her life. The second part of her life is obvious. She dedicated her, her life while she was pregnant. She also dedicated her life to her son who became a shayfet. He wasn't just a shayfet. He was, he was going out to battle every day, right? He was Shimshon Agibar, right? He went out to battle every day and she supported him. And then he made certain decisions in life, like going to marry into the Polishtim, which was very controversial, right? So she supported him and she lived her life with this altruism. But I think that going back to the original story, She's told something. She says, she's told, hey, here you go. Um, you're, you're going to have a child. And this child is going to need to be born into this Nizirus. And she says, okay. And then she comes home and tells it to her husband. And her husband says, yeah. Listen to what he says. Yeah. I don't know if I really, you know, trust you so much. He doesn't say those words. But, you know, like. Let me just, I just have to have a mincha, right? What is his, what is his tefillah? His tefillah is, you know, my wife's voice, I wasn't really listening to so much, right? I, I need the malach to come back and tell me what I'm supposed to do. And the malach, in a certain sense, doesn't say it straight out, but basically says, No. What I told the, the, the wife, yeah, Hamaven Yavin. He repeats it to Menayach. We needed him in part of the story. But the fact that it came to the wife, her voice, her voice was important here. Her upbringing was important here for Shimshon Agibar. And if you put this all together, I think that we sort of have three stages. Number one is that a person becomes a person within their marriage. Yes, there's a concept of being mavatal yourself, of, 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 I don't, I don't like the word compromise, but like be coming to a new agreement on certain things and lowering yourself and listening to the other person. I think that there's a tremendous place and time for that. But oftentimes what I find is that people become, I always say like they're mavater, mavater, mavater until they become a shmater. They became a nobody. You don't have any, any zikh in this relationship. You have no self of, no sense of self. You, you don't have time for yourself. You don't have an opinion for yourself. You're, you're, you're a nothing. You're a nobody. You're not a person. Every case where you find people who are so supportive of their spouses, they also were so successful in and of themselves. Reverend Kanievsky is a great example. The most supportive wife in the world. Literally the most supportive wife in the world. But on her own, she had her time for davening, her time for tehillim, women coming and asking her opinion, and her husband was mosh of her for who she was. And we could say a thousand such stories. She was not just parroting everything that her husband said. Although she would say, my husband said this, my husband said that. Of course, she was mosh of him. Becoming a person is step number one, right? And then prioritizing your family, prioritizing your husband, prioritizing your, your wife, that is sort of step number two. And then I think step number three is that there are so many people that are living their lives in survival mode. I hear this from so many people. I'm just in survival mode. 
I'm just trying to get from today to tomorrow to the next day to the day after. There's no, I'll say there's no purpose in their life. There's no, they're not, they're not even thinking, what's my kafkid in this world? What makes me different than the other 7 billion people on this planet? They're not even thinking that. They're not thinking what talents are unique to me. What can I give to the tzibur? What ideas do I have in my mind that I'd love to share with other people? It's none of that. It's just simply trying to survive. And comes along this Eishas Chayel. And she says, yes, survival is step number one. And that is very important. And being mavato yourself is also very important. But you should know that if you actually have ideas in your mind, if you actually have dreams, you have dreams? What do you dream of? People dream of money. Oh, why? We just said, dreaming of money is not a dream. Dreaming of money so that it gives you the ability to dream what you're going to do with your time, what purpose you're going to fulfill in this world, that's a taf, that's a tachlis. There's That there's a reason for. And that's what this pasuk is. This woman goes ahead and makes a lot of money, but not just l'shem money, l'shem control. Not control of other people, control of herself, of her own destiny, of her own life. And if a person is able to do that, you're able to give out to other people. You're able to be humbled by other people. You're able to be challenged by other people. You're able to listen to other people, especially your spouse. You don't speak over them. They don't speak over you. There's a mutual respect. They know when you say yes, it's because you want to say yes. I always tell married men, don't say I have to. Don't say I have to spend time with my wife. It's the most demeaning thing you could say to her. I have to. I have to mean somebody forcing you to do this. Nobody wants any favors. Say, I want to. It's a schus to. The ability to do something because you choose to do it. That is real, real power. And that's where this is. Again, this could be very misconstrued. You could have somebody who's narcissistic who listens to this whole share and says, oh, great. My job is to stand up for myself and make my voice heard and put everybody else down because I'm important and they're nobody. No, that's not what this is. It's the exact opposite. It's understanding that when you're a nothing, you're, you're not contributing to your relationship. You're contributing 2%. It's very nice, all the little stuff that you'll do, but what your spouse actually wants is a spouse. They want a person. They want somebody that will challenge them. It's one of the greatest things in life is somebody to challenge you. I heard from somebody who's a, who's a, like, he's a top trainer. He said that a person can only put himself through so much pain and so much stress and so much challenge. We stop. We hit our pain threshold and then we stop. Somebody else can actually take you to places that you can't go on your own. Being married is that exact idea of It's not good when you're alone. I'm giving you a spouse. What is the spouse for? For chicken and rice, as my twins say, chicken and rice. Right? That's what chicken and rice, you made food, you made supper. Right? That's what that's what that's what it's about. No, it's so much deeper than that. It's self-development. It's developing the person to become a bigger, better version of themselves. And this person is starting to shift into this mode of how is my life transforming through who I'm becoming? My successes are great, but how is it changing me on the inside? What am I giving to the world, to society, without neglecting my family, by prioritizing my family? My, my spouse also has a voice and my children also have a voice and I'm listening to them and they're listening to me and there's mutual respect and understanding. And now we could just like start giving out to the rest of the world. Whoa, this is deep. This is deep. Once we're able to get there, then we're able to really build something. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.